0: The title of this evening's talk is In the Footsteps of the Buddha uh, The Highest Happiness is Peace So, in keeping with the retreat theme but Before I launch into the meat of the talk I first want to express my appreciation for your practice today and staying with the day Congratulations for making it through the first day It is, um, as Martina mentioned last night, it takes a lot of courage to come on retreat, to to stop, to unplug, to keep quiet, and to look within. It's very, very rare in this world. It really is, as the Buddha described, going against the stream. And, in fact, when we start to go against the stream, it feels... For many people, as they land on the first day, it feels like, as my friend Mary Grace Orr says, like a swamp. Any of you feel like you were in the swamp today? A mm-hmm. little familiar. But it is, uh, it is no small thing to, to stop, because as Rumi put it, our, our old life has been an endless running from silence. We have been in constant uh, movement, and the movement has not been so often to, uh, to abide calmly in the present moment, receptively receive our experience. It's been an obsession with what's next, our mind fixated on, on uh, where we're going. So what we experience when we come on retreat that first, the first day, maybe even the first few days, is we experience the the legacy, the residue, the really the cost of our innocent um, pursuit of, of what's next, of the future, our absorption in the past, in memories. Because all of us have been been touched by the stresses of life, of trauma, of just all kinds of life circumstances. And those circumstances have spawned a a natural urge to find relief, but uh, most of our attempts to find relief uh, have actually added to our stress. So to actually stop and feel that is a very rare thing. Fortunately, we use our confusion, our fatigue, we use everything as our path. We use it, We think of it as Trungpa Rinpoche, a Tibetan teacher. We think of our own stress that we feel, the swamp feeling. We we call it the he calls it the manure of bodhi, the fertilizer of our awakening. Because if we can put the light of attention on the, that very experience, we use the very thing that's happening to begin to reorient ourselves slowly, slowly reorient ourselves to the life of the present moment. We come out of the tangle of our imagination, of our thinking, and we come face to face with the, the simple reality of the present moment, the simple reality of just six experiences that are happening often not so pleasant, but the six experiences that are happening of seeing, of hearing, smelling, of tasting, of sensation, of thinking, these six experiences, that's really all that's going on. Because of our unfamiliarity with the simplicity of the present moment, our mi- and our habit of going out of ourselves, escaping in our mind, our mind has created a feeling both a feeling and a a sense of great complication, confusion. So even to be able to stop for a moment and feel, oh, my body hurts. My heart aches. My knees are throbbing. My body's crooked. Whatever it is, or I feel a sense of ease great sense of relief. Whatever it is, that becomes our path. And you can hear from this notion of confusion being our path, that uh, even though we, you could say we're following a path in the footsteps of the Buddha, as the Zen monk Ryokan puts it, uh, the way goes nowhere. He says, Buddha is your mind and the way goes nowhere. Don't look for anything but this. If you point your cart north when you want to go south, how will you ever arrive? Our habit, obviously, is to point our cart north, is to be busy going someplace. But we're reminded by the simplicity of our practice and these unfolding present moments that the path, the beginning of our path is right here, the only place that life is. Have you ever, is there any other place than right here, except in your imagination? So we see that the beginning of the path is right here. The path itself is right here. And the end of the path, right here. So every single moment that you wake up, you could say, to to what's happening put the light of attention on what it is that's, that's occurring. This is what begins to bring light, brings illumination. It brings openness of heart, open mind, open heart. Hafiz put it this way in his poem called, It Felt Love. How did the rose ever open its heart and give to this world all its beauty? It felt the encouragement of light against its being. Otherwise, we all remain too frightened. It felt the encouragement of light against its being. So sometimes this metaphor of light is used for, for that capacity that we have to reflect what it is that's going on, to be able to know that. It's, we take it for granted, this sense of consciousness, the, the this un this uncaused, natural thing that we have, that if I ask you not to be conscious or not to be aware, what happens? It's so primary that it's so easily overlooked. And when it's, when it's nurtured, nurtured through rubbing it against whatever is happening, right now, even what you're experiencing in this room, notice what you're experiencing. Meet it with the light of attention, even if it's something really uncomfortable. In that moment, in that little mini moment where you're simply noticing what it is that's going on, you haven't had time yet to build a story about it, to analyze it, to interpret it, to condemn, to condemn it, to compare it to your previous experience. In that simple moment, even an extremely painful experience, uncomfortable experience is just a painful and uncomfortable experience. So even though we have unplugged, all of us have unplugged from our daily routines, our daily dependencies, I know people spoke of their their caffeine withdrawals and their contact withdrawals and their cell phone withdrawals and many of these things even though we've unplugged from all of this bringing in the simple moments in as few few or as many moments as we were able to today bringing that light of attention to bear on this present moment this present moment is in another sense like plugging in unplugging from the from the performance of our mind, you could say, the imagined past and the imagined future, and plugging into the vitality of the present moment. Notice what it's like right now, regardless of what happened to you today. Whatever your situation is in your life, notice what happens when you, for a few moments, don't look ahead and you don't look back. And you're just here. In some one way, you could say you are in in reality. You're not dreaming. Well, you could say this is a waking dream, but, but we're here. And when we when we don't look back and, we're, and we don't look ahead we, and we arrive in whatever it is that's happening, there is a, there's a, something that starts to percolate, a kind of life that comes back to us. Losing contact with this life, this presentness, uh, we, our whole vitality, our energy system becomes quite diminished. And Of course, a lot of what we experience the first days of the retreat is the effects of of how how diminished we feel, how deeply exhausted. But even over the course of a day, I already see the the light starting to come back into people's eyes. You may not feel it from the inside, even at the end of the first day. I wonder how many of you have planned your escape today. (laughs) This is what happens, of course, because it's not easy. But nevertheless, whatever moments you were able to, to stop, connect with that plug into that uh, present time, you are actually planting the seeds of, of, of presentness, of, of presence, of life. One of my favorite teachers, Sri Gadatta, put it this way, he says, reality is what makes the present so vital, so different from past and future, which are merely mental. And another Advaita Vedanta teacher Uh, Ramakrishna, who probably many of you have read, uh, he would cry out these songs of of realization, and he would say, O longing mind, dwell within the depths of your nature. Do not seek your home elsewhere. Say, "Your, your naked awareness, your own being, your naked awareness alone, O mind, is the inexhaustible abundance for which you long so desperately. You may not know it as you settle into the retreat and you practice moment-to-moment mindfulness, but what you're doing is you're plugging into that inexhaustible abundance for which you long so desperately, not to be found anyplace else. So even in the midst of our struggles, we, we wake up. We wake up in the midst of it all. So, even though we have this great capacity, we, all, we are all Buddhas. As Kala Rinpoche says, you, uh, you are the Buddha. Why don't you recognize this? He says, because there's a veil, which is the thought that you're, the idea that you're not the Buddha. You believe that you're somebody usually quite flawed. Again, that's, a, that's the, our story. We can't usually find much evidence of it in the immediate present. But nevertheless, We have this great abundance, but we also are much more practiced, much more practiced at looking for relief uh, somewhere else. The Buddha spoke about this search for relief somewhere else, and you probably became experts on this today. You could say you probably had an experience of uh, at least the first two noble truths in real time. First truth, there's stress. There's things about my experience, about my life, that are difficult to bear. There's the stress of being in a body. There's a stress of not getting what I want. Any of you have that today? Stress of not wanting what you get, that you had a lot of that today. Lots of stress. He moves on to the I'm very briefly moving through these He moves on to the second truth, what he calls a noble truth not to be, uh, not to be just reflected on as, as an idea, but to be realized here and now. He says that what adds to this stress. What keeps it proliferating is this habit of, you could say in the general sense, wanting things to be different than the way they are. Did any of you notice that today? Nobody's nodding, thank you. It expresses itself as craving for pleasure, some pleasure. Craving to, trying to get somewhere for becoming or some craving to make it all stop. I know I heard from a few of you that you wanted it to all stop. So this habit of mind has, has kept us, this habit of wanting things to be different than the way they are, has kept us in a state of perpetual dissatisfaction. And it comes home to roost on a retreat. We get to see it. We get to see the the tension that is produced by that, that sense of, of there being, of pointing my cart north and thinking that my sense of well-being is to be found somewhere else, there's tension that gets created there. And that spawns that, that innocent search for, for relief. But innocently, again, we are taught from day one to not to stop and look for it right here not that the cure for pain is in the pain, as Rumi puts it, but to to look to the world of of um, of pleasure of as in the set in the sense of becoming we as Boloza puts it, we' are caught up in trying to keep up with the Joneses he says though it's time that we understood or saw that the Joneses aren't very happy. You know, they may be happy in a certain kind of way. They may have lots of pleasure, but they may not be truly happy. In fact, they, like the mo- like most of us, who bring to our, who have in our mind this, tendency toward a misplaced, what the Buddha called misplaced faith in the the pleasures of the world. Uh, The legacy of that, the residue of that is a lot of dissatisfaction and a state of, of waiting and wanting. This we internalize completely, innocently and naturally. This is how Sogyal Rinpoche puts it in his very straightforward uh, view and indictment of our culture. Sometimes I think that the greatest achievement of modern culture is its brilliant selling of samsara. Samsara is this endless wandering, this wandering looking. Its brilliant selling of samsara and its barren distractions. Modern society seems to me to be a celebration of all the things that lead away from the truth, make truth hard to live for and discourage people from even believing that it exists. And to think that all this springs from a civilization that claims to adore life, but actually starves it of any real meaning, that endlessly speaks of making people happy, but in fact blocks their way to the source of real joy. This modern samsara feeds off an anxiety and depression that it fosters and trains us all in and carefully nurtures with a consumer machine that needs to keep us greedy to keep going. Samsara is highly organized, versatile, and sophisticated. It assaults us from every angle with its propaganda and creates an almost impregnable environment of addiction around us. And, of course, you can see after sitting for a day within us The more we try to escape, the more we seem to fall into the traps. It's so ingenious at setting for us. As an 18th century Lama put it, mesmerized by the sheer variety of perceptions, beings wander endlessly astray in samsara's vicious cycle, obsessed then with false hopes, dreams, and ambitions, which promise happiness but lead only to misery. We are like people crawling through an endless desert, dying of thirst, and all that samsara holds out to us to drink is a cup of salt water designed to make us even thirstier. How do you feel now? I <laughs> don't you know why I always get happy when I read this. Because it, it wakes me up to how it is and how easily my, I can be seduced into uh, the, the next experience. I've been in the middle of meditation retreats completely at ease and, and a desire will come into my mind based on past conditioning, things that I've really enjoyed. And I had the desire once to, uh, to listen to a football game on the radio in the middle of a three-month retreat. I was too, my, and my radio, which I had with me, a little transistor, I was too embarrassed to go to the office and ask for batteries. So I walked three miles to the nearest town to buy batteries for my, for my radio. This is that trance I actually thought that I had to have that. Even in, the, in, this, in this beautiful womb of the Dharma where I'm getting constant reminders of the way out is in, my mind is still entranced in this view that I have to listen to this ball game. I have many ball game stories on retreats, but that I won't bore you with anymore. <laughs> this, this has exhausted us. One writer put it this way, in America I've seen the freest and best educated of men and women in the circumstances the happiest to be found in the world. Yet it seemed to me that a cloud habitually hung on their brow and they seemed almost sad in their pleasure. Because they never stop thinking of the good things they have not got yet. Not yet got. That was Alexis de Tocqueville. I think that was in the 1700s. Nothing new under the sun here. But you see how we internalize this kind of conditioning, really, maybe from beginningless time. And it was the exact same situation uh, that, the, that the Buddha found himself in, even 2,500 years ago. Thich Nhat Hanh reminds us in the midst of this, he says, you, who are the richest person on earth, who've been going around begging for a living, stop being the destitute child. Come home, reclaim your heritage. Hopefully you're getting the sense, even after a day, that that's what we're, we're doing here. We're reclaiming our heritage, that richness, and we're here partly, as I spoke of last night, when I offered the formal uh, reciting of the hindrances. Uh, not the hindrances, excuse me, <laughs> the refuges. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> the hindrances. See, the hindrances are our refuge on the retreat. <laughs> if we can wake up to them, whatever your mind was doing today, if you notice it, you've you've recovered that vital point. You've come back to yourself. Getting back to the Buddha, we wouldn't be here if the Buddha hadn't found himself in a very similar predicament as most of us. He had a, like all human beings, what the Dalai Lama suggests is, really universally true for all human beings. We all want to be happy. And we all want to be free of suffering. We're all seeking relief. And he was no different. And he was no different in other ways that relative to, uh, to his time, just as relative to other, um, <laughs> other places in this world and people in different circumstances, this, there's a lot of privilege here. There is, a, there is a, we have generally, for the most part, our basic needs are met, enough food, enough shelter, just the fact that your conditions are such that you could even come on this retreat, even if you came on scholarship, it's, it's really a sign of, of privilege that's really not always available. There are billions of people in this world that can't hear teachings, it would not be safe to gather like this, It wouldn't have the life circumstances to support it. Relative to his time, he was neck deep in the the, um, privilege of his existence. And yet, he had that, that sense of dissatisfaction. That sense of he had lots and lots of pleasure, but not a lot of happiness. And he began to feel restless just like all of us felt restless and at some point in the span of his life his his mind gave rise to a what i call a, a kind of desire a holy desire a holy longing longing for something not just to take the edge off not the next best uh, pleasurable experience but a desire that no other desire could fulfill, that desire that I spoke of last night, that desire for a reliable refuge, some place that, that would withstand the, the ups and downs, the, the joys and the sorrows, the, what we call the eight, dharma, the eight worldly dharmas, the pleasure and pain, gain and loss, fame and shame. Uh, anyway, you get the point. and he could not find it in his circumstances. He had everything he could possibly want in terms of pleasures, but he didn't, he didn't have that sense of, of peace. He didn't have that sense of, of relaxation and ease. And fortunately, he had an experience of meeting, and I don't need to get into the whole story, but he began to realize, through some experiences that he had, that he was going to get old. And it really struck him. And he realized that he was likely to get sick. And then he also realized that he was gonna die. And I know many people, uh, that's really what drives them to practice. Life is short. What's it all about? And it awakens some kind of deep question and with him, it was so, it was so striking that it, it said in the teachings that the, what are called the three prides were eradicated from his mind or they, they faded away. The, the three prides being the pride, the way that we organize our lives and our identities, uh, we call pride, the sense of who we think we are. His pride in youth vanished his pride in health vanished and his pride in life vanished. And he began to reflect a little bit more, thinking about everything that he usually sought after for a sense of relief, and he says, well, if I am subject to birth, sickness, old age, and death, Everything about me is impermanent. Why should I seek after that which is subject to decay and change, impermanence? And it, it just didn't make any sense anymore to keep chasing after experiences that didn't give him any kind of, of relief. It just kept increasing the sense of quicksand And it's said that uh, he was, fell into uh, a kind of shock, a shock and dismay at the futility of trying to find reliable happiness in the changing conditions of our mind and body and the changing conditions of our experiences. Now that sounds a little to my own ear right now. It doesn't sound like such good news. But it's good news in that it became the cause of him giving rise to this deeper desire, this holy longing. And it turns out, and I'll give you a little sneak preview of of the end, that if one gives rise and makes their devotion this deeper desire, this desire for for this refuge that no other desire can fulfill, At least it's said in the teachings that if you aim for this highest happiness, again, the highest happiness is peace. Not the peace of a peaceful mood, but the the intrinsic peace, silence, freedom of your own nature. But if you aim for this highest happiness, then all the other kinds of pleasures will come in the wake of it. And just a little digression. The Buddha was not down on, My at least my understanding is, the Buddha was not down on the pleasures of the world. And I don't mean down in the modern sense. You know, that's often used. I'm down with that. <laughs> I don't mean that. He wasn't, he wasn't, um, he actually saw the pleasures of the world that all of us tend to, uh, to, devote ourselves to, whether we admit it or not, said that this domain of experience, worldly pleasures, is a, it's, it's really it's a wonderful thing. It's one of the great happiness, it's one of the ways, a great way that one, a, a worldly person, a human being can be happy, is they can have pleasure, they can enjoy it, And he also said that we're not able to even experience this kind of pleasure unless we have a certain kind of um, purity. And in this case, he described the purity that really creates the possibility of enjoying the world of pleasures. He called it purity of action, which means we live in general a life of non-harming, a life of kindness, a life of, of care with our speech and our livelihood and our uh, use of intoxicants, all those precepts that uh, that we spoke of last night. That if you live in that way it creates the conditions, the inner conditions, to be able to be open, not to be constantly reverberating from the effects of things that you've done that have caused harm, and it opens our eyes, allows us to have be be open-hearted, to unfurl our, our consciousness, to tune into each other, to feel the joy of connection, to feel the joy of solitude, to feel the joy of tastes, of sounds, of smells, all of it very beautiful. But he also said that this kind of pleasure is ultimately subsumed under the umbrella of what he called dukkha or suffering, in that this whole domain of pleasures, even the pleasure of, of uh, being a good person, all the, and all the pleasures that come with it, ultimately uh, it is unreliable, because the conditions change. We cannot cling to it. And if we do, we get rope burn, we get we suffer. We get tight, we get contracted, we get fearful. Any of you feel any of that? Tight, fearful, contracted. We end up then worrying in a state of worry. So at this point he both as you can hear he appreciated the world of sense pleasures, but knew it was not, not what his true medicine was. And he was drawn to meditation practice, hearing of many teachers that were, avail- were around in the day, in his time, just as there are many yogis, many teachers, many teachings available to us today, maybe, uh, probably comparable to the time that the Buddha lived. I don't think any, there's never been a time in the world where so many of the different flavors, at least of the Buddha Dharma and other traditions, have met in one place and mingled so intensely as they have in this very country and this very time. Uh, so we're living in a kind of fertile, fertile moment for teachings to be available. And it's it's kind of confusing what to what to follow. What was offered in his day, the best of the teachings were teachings on yoga, teachings on, uh, teachings on the, the Vedas, but the practices that were done were mostly practices that have to do with concentration and tranquility, elements of which you've been that you are training in as you do this retreat. And you can hear from, hopefully you can hear from this conversation that the teachings that the Buddha ultimately gave and the path that you're following here very much reflect what he experienced in his life. So it's something that's just, that's just, that's, um, you could say, um, that's organic, that has emerged from direct experience. It's not, it hasn't emerged from someone just sitting back and thinking, "Hmm, wouldn't that be an interesting practice to do? It emerged right in the midst of his life. Even that sense of the, the beauty of the world of sense pleasures, and the beauty of, of, non-harming, all of that emerged in the, in the course of his life. And in fact, the first part of the Eightfold Path, the fourth noble truth of the Buddha, was establishing the pa- a path, using as your path, the uh, wise speech, wise action, uh, wise lively, all those domains of experience um, of where, how we live our lives. And in fact, he said, if you make this domain strong, this domain of non-harming strong, this purity of action, it makes possible the next part of the path, which the Buddha described as purity of mind. We have purity of action, purity of mind. So purity of mind is what he discovered when he started to meditate. He started to do the tranquility and concentration practices that were available in his time Probably the Anapanasati, the mindfulness of breathing, that initial tool that we offer you, that you've been doing all day, this is one of the tools that he used, bringing the mind and body together, bringing a sense of harmony, utilizing this capacity in our mind that all human beings have to connect. It's what we long to do, to connect, and to then sustain that connection. It's our it's our intimacy muscle, it's our love muscle, it's our, it's our alive muscle, is to connect with what's happening in the present moment. And we use as our anchor our, our body breath in this case. Well, he did this, and with the, the great passion that he did it with, he, exper- he quite quickly experienced the fruits of that kind of connection, that connecting and the sustaining of that connection, the, the, just connecting with the breath and staying with it, you could say. And because he was not so interested in anything else except finding some more reliable relief, his mind went uh, very quickly into uh, states of, of tranquility and concentration. And it's described in the teachings that what he experienced was a kind of happiness and pleasure that far surpassed any of the kinds of pleasure that he exper- had experienced in his life as a sensualist, as someone who's immersed in, in the pleasures of life. Not only was it more exceedingly pleasurable, but it could be sustained for much longer periods of time. So this was very delicious. And I know many of you who've sat retreats have touched moments like this. And maybe even today you may have had some moments when there was this sense of tranquility, what was often described as unmixed happiness. Unmixed happiness meaning not mixed up with, I want this, I don't want this, I'm restless, I'm agitated, I'm worried, I'm doubting, I'm confused. For at least for the time, for the span of that period of experience, his mind just didn't move so much. It was just right here, right now, absorbed in its, in its own presentness. Lots of, lots of comfort, lots of rapture, a sense of one-pointedness, a sense of unity with the life around him, inside and outside. Beautiful thing. But as he sat with this, uh, this explorer of the heart and mind, which is really what it means to walk in the footsteps of the Buddha, it means we don't really, we don't make any assumptions about anything. We see what is this experience that's happening? In this case, the extremely pleasurable experience, but the same spirit Ideally, we bring to the experiences that are not so pleasant. What's it like to feel bored? Let me, as we often joke here, let me be the first one to die of boredom. Take me, surrender, feel it. So the direction of our practice is to really explore the nature of our experience. So as the Buddha explored the nature of this mind that is was well collected and composed this unmixed happiness he realized that as delicious as rapturous as compelling intoxicating addictive as this is this is a changing experience this is this has a lot of suka in it. Sukha is the word for comfort or happiness. But this suka is actually dukkha, or as we often say, it's sukkadukkha. dukkha <laughs> Sukha-dukkha is that even in the midst of these most pleasurable experiences hidden in it is its inherent unreliability, its emptiness, its insubstantiality. And this was the culmination of what was being taught in his day. So at this point he had nowhere, there was nowhere to turn other than toward himself. And so as we practice, we utilize, and he saw in in his later teachings, he saw that developing this kind of pleasure and comfort and tranquility and concentration is very, very important. This purity of mind makes it possible, if we don't let the intoxication of it overtake us, it's possible then to apply the, the, the brightness of our mind, the wakefulness that comes with this kind of tranquility, to apply it toward the practice of mindful attention. So we begin in the same way. We develop some measure of tranquility, of steadiness. We continue to connect and we sustain. Slowly, slowly, we begin to to taste a little bit of that sense of I'm here now. I've landed, I've arrived. I finally, for a moment in the span of my life, I'm not busy trying to get somewhere else. Any of you have a few moments like that today? As we touch these, we realize that they, they will slip away. In fact, you'll notice in the course of this retreat that almost every time you touch a moment like that, it will be followed by exactly its opposite. We call this, we call this purity followed by purification. And so it's it's very important not to give yourself a to evaluate it in, in any way, as the Dalai Lama says. Maybe after ten or twenty years, evaluate your practice. But in the short run, don't give yourself any trouble about it. Feeling as though your practice is going backwards—it's all part of the the natural deepening of presence. Because if we get too intoxicated, get too attached. Uh, we, um, we, we suffer, as Hafiz put it in his, in his uh, poem called The Ten Thousand Idiots. It's always a danger, he says, to aspirants on the path when they begin to believe and act as if the ten thousand idiots who so long ruled and lived inside have all packed their bags and skipped town or died. <laughs> we may get a break, but things come back. And this teaches us again and again why there's such an emphasis, not so much at attaining particular states, but rather finding our composure with the changing conditions that present themselves, finding relief in the middle of it all, using our confusion as our path, whatever it is that's happening. So many of you know this story better than I do, but just a little piece of the, the, what happened next for, for the Buddha. He, of course, saw that the extreme of, of pleasure, either sensual pleasure or even meditative pleasure, was, could not be said to be a reliable refuge, and so he decided to do the opposite, which is extreme displeasure, or unpleasantness, doing ascetic practices where he starved himself, denied himself pleasure, comfort, and he went to the other extreme. And he saw at that point that all it did was make him sick and tired and irritating and irritated, as it does most people when they adopt rigid views, when they get too attached to uh, to uh, to not doing something. And the reminder in our practice as you go through this is that when we talk about the um, the pleasure of the senses and it doesn't and how desire causes more suffering it doesn't mean you you drop it, it means you pay attention to it. You see for yourself what is it that happens when you when you uh, are in that state of wanting or waiting or hoping, so having realized that the extremes of asceticism and pleasure were didn't uh, really bring much reliable relief. it said at that point he discovered uh, the middle way. He remembered a time when he was young, he was comfortable, he was well fed, his mind was was at ease. He saw that these are really important conditions for our practice, to be well fed, to be comfortable. So of course we need to not be so dependent on comfort be so fixated on our comfort because otherwise we're our happiness in that case is not so reliable when we are comfortable we're happy when we're not we're not happy but that's not, that that doesn't work either the buddha called that kind of happiness he called it lok lokiya sukha worldly happiness it's it's um, it's slippery it's he called it the happiness of bondage because we get stuck in uh, depending on th- things to be a certain way for our sense of well-being. How this got highlighted was the next phase of his practice. He saw that the purity of action was a beautiful thing, purity of mind was a beautiful thing. But the next phase of the practice, called purity of view, which is what will slowly emerge, as you, and probably has over the course of your practice, slowly emerge as you start to apply the strength of attention to your changing experience. And what he did at this point is he, sat, he stopped and he sat down and decided with incredible determination not to get up until he found what he was looking for, found a reliable refuge. Are you still with me? And he did exactly what we're doing here. He arose some degree of tranquility, used his mind and body, brought them together, felt that experience of being right here, right now, and experienced that that state of of tranquility. Then, instead of letting that tranquility overtake him, the, the joy of it, he applied his attention to his mind, the movements of his mind, his moods, his emotions, his thoughts, his images, sounds, the sensations. And the more he paid attention, and I'll, say, I'll suggest the more we pay attention to the flow of experience with as much continuity as we can, with as much kindness as we can, with as much an open and receptive attitude as we can when he did this, as he paid attention, his mind, his attention, with each experience that he paid attention to, his mind got brighter and brighter. Until it became so bright that he was quite taken with the with the um, luminosity of his own mind, shining in its clarity. And I know all of us up here can, and uh, testify, having led a lot of retreats and watched what happens when people go through retreats. It's amazing on the last day. This is especially for people who are doing a, a first retreat. But the light starts to just shine through each of us. Our hearts become so tender and sweet. And this is not an accident. Buddha said if this was not possible to experience just what he described, He said, I would not ask you to do this. So he kept applying that mindful attention moment to moment, just in the same way that we are. And the more he paid attention, the brighter his mind got. And what became so crystal clear, as everything was reflected in his mind, is that everything, all the pleasures that came into his mind, all the doubts that came into his mind, all the sensations that came into his mind, they were in a constant state of flux and change. There was nothing that was stable. Everything was continuous. And it became so obvious that there was nothing in that, in that, in that most intimate sense, in that most immediate sense, there was nothing there that could be clung to. Nothing there that could be held on to that it was, there was nothing that one could say, this is me, this is mine, this is a reliable refuge. And as he paid attention very carefully, and as you pay attention carefully, as he sat there noticing how everything comes and goes, and his mind was filled with doubts and fears and... The voice that you've heard probably the stories where the voice of Mara came and said, who do you think you are sitting there? Probably the same voice that you had today. Everybody else is getting enlightened. I'm a, I'm a miserable meditator. Whatever, whatever came into your mind. He began to see that this is just a changing thought. And as he made that shift from, being, from believing those thoughts, from being so caught up in his body, in his moods, to noticing that these moods were arising and passing, quite naturally by themselves. They, in some sense, they had no owner. The sadness was feeling sad. The happiness was feeling happy. It was just changing conditions. And as he saw so clearly that everything was in a state of change, his mind stopped grabbing. It stopped pushing things away that were unpleasant. And mindfulness kept, the the very function of mindfulness is to begin to loosen that tendency to grab and to push and to ignore. We'll speak much more about these tendencies of mind. But as he sat there, his mind relaxed and he fell into this, um, this great sense of joy, seeing things in their simplicity, Seeing a sound as a sound, a thought as a thought, a sight as a sight. Nothing added. Very simple. Very much here. And he began to experience this great joy. What's been called sometimes called, as I, one of my colleagues called it, vipassana happiness, but. sometimes called the joy of equanimity, a kind of joy at not being so caught up in things, joy in being non-reactive, and I'm sure some of you today maybe had a taste of that or some time in the course of your life. As an experience, this is a a changing condition, this experience of equanimity, but it gave a glimpse of a sense of well-being that didn't so much depend on what was happening in his mind or in his body. Gave him a, a glimpse at what he called Sukha, the unconditioned happiness, a happiness that's, that de- doesn't depend on conditions, that, that pervades pleasure, pleasure or pain, that pervades any experience. And as he sat in that joy of equanimity, so clear that there was nothing that could be clung to, and owned, and held on to, and seen as reliable. He just fell into a, a, a sense of well-being and this, this equanimity, this balance, this mountain-like presence. And as he rested in that, that open continuous awareness in a flash of insight his mind you could one way of talking about it his mind opened his mind unfurled and in that flash of insight he realized that the very thing that he had been searching for that reliable refuge, that place to rest, was none other than the very nature of his own mind. It's been described in the teachings and the sutras like this. There is a field of experience beyond the entire field of matter, the entire field of mind, that is neither this world nor another world, nor both, neither moon nor sun. This I call neither arising nor passing away, nor abiding, neither dying nor rebirth. It is without support, without development, without foundation. This is the end of suffering. His mind, gone to the so-called unconditioned, recognized that, that he didn't need to move In fact, he needed to remain, as you do, right exactly where you are to find what you're looking for. Buddha is your mind, and the way goes nowhere. Don't look for anything but this. So this was a very subtle experience, (laughs) needless to say. And at first he didn't think anybody could get it. But then he saw that with his so-called eye of wisdom that there were those with just a little dust on their eyes that if pointed back to their own capacity, their own Buddha nature, their own, to the Dharma, to the truth of this unfolding present moment, to, to the Sangha, if, those, if, if they were pointing in that direction that they could understand. So he started with his nearest and dearest, uh, most devoted Dharma friends, and he delivered the teaching that's been called the, the chakra the turning of the wheel of Dharma. That includes the Four Noble Truths. And he said, there's stress. Everybody's got it. You need to welcome it. You need to open to it. Find your composure within it. The cause of it is the continual wanting it to be different. This must be relinquished, abandoned. said, we can, in real time, experience, notice that there is a cessation, there's a falling away of this demand, this, this uh, craving for what's next. We can know this for ourselves. And there's a path. And that path is um, the Noble Eightfold Path, purity of action, purity of mind, purity of view, seeing things just as they are, rising, passing. The navigator of this path, the central part of this path, is the path of mindful attention, the very um, practice that we're doing here. So we have within us this capacity, the encouragement is that we, that we give ourselves to it. I'd like to end with a, another Hafiz poem reminding us of the different directions we can go with our lives. This is called To Build a Swing. You carry all the ingredients to turn your life into a nightmare. Don't mix them. You have all the genius to build, to build a swing in your backyard to the divine. That sounds like a hell of a lot more fun. Let's start laughing, drawing blueprints, gathering our talented friends. I will help you with my divine lyre and drum. Afiz will sing a thousand words you can take into your hands like golden saws, silver hammers, polished teakwood, strong silk rope. You carry all the ingredients to turn your existence into joy. Mix them, mix them. So let's mix a little and sit for a moment. beings come home to their own nature. So thank you for your kind attention. I know the sitting through a Dharma talk on the first evening can sometimes be a bit of a challenge. So thanks for staying with it. We have a half hour now for walking practice, so please take advantage of this. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.